0: Well, this is kind of on a little bit on a lighter note. Um, this last week, um, my my family and I went up to Kickback, joined our, our high school students up there, and the, the the staff of the High Life Ministry here, and for the first time stayed the whole week because I now have two high schoolers in that that program, and um, we had a had a good time. Um, the very first time I, I let my littlest one, who's seven years old, go down the the frigid South Fork of the American River by himself, he uh, he he refused to have me hold on to him like. First year I took him, he was in a raft with me. Second year he was on my lap with me and this year he's like, I'm in my own tube. And so he, it was so hard for me to let him go and watch him bounce along the waves all the way down, but he made it. The first time without flipping over, second time he did flip over but he was courageous, came up, grabbed his tube and he made it through the day. Um, but I have to say in, in response or respect to kickback and, and what our high school students do, we have an amazing group of high school students. Um, blessed to have them. And, and, and an amazing group of of youth staff here, and um, one of the things the Lord has done long before I ever got here and has continued to do is continue to give this church a heart for its youth and for the youth in the community. I'm grateful for that, especially as a father of two, and so I'm um, thankful. I'm also thankful that they're, they're uh, cognizant of the fact that going down the South Fork of the American River can be a bit of a dangerous thing, especially if the water's high or kids don't know exactly how to approach the river. My dad happens to be, a, um, well, among other things, a whitewater canoe instructor, so he taught me the, the dangers of current in a river. And, um, and one of the things that they do up there uh, to prepare our, our high school students before they go down the river is they do this kind of water safety class, and Tony Teeman Tony did it this year. And they point out all the dangers in the river, and in fact you have to always wear your life jacket and things to stay away from, where to get out, where to put in, that kind of stuff, because there are really dangerous sections on the south fork of the American River. And one of the things he said is he, he, he pointed out on this map of the river that there is a submerged tree here, and you want to stay away from the submerged tree because, um, you know, the water can suck you down underneath the, 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 the branches. And at that point, he says, and, and if that happens, well, bad things happen. Um, that's a direct quote, bad things happen. That was his way of saying if you get sucked down underneath that tree, you're going to die, you know. And um, I know as a, as a parent, it's just like, I, I want my kids to have a healthy respect for things that are dangerous or potentially dangerous, especially strong currents in a river. And that's what we do at, um, when we love people at, um, is, is, is we want them to be aware that there's dangerous situations, you know? Um, if, well, I think most parents here are decent parents. You know, you teach your kids about the danger if you don't play with matches because you could burn yourself uh, and your house down. Or, or teaching them about you know, the danger of doing drugs or the danger of abusing alcohol, the danger of driving too fast, the danger of driving while texting. I mean, we just, the things that are truly dangerous, we heighten our awareness to because we love them and we want them to have a sense of warning and sobriety about how dangerous certain things can be. Um, we live in a, in a time where we're constantly um, made aware of the dangers of terrorism, of weapons of mass destruction or global warming, and it's like constantly just heightening the awareness of all of these dangers out there. Um, what's kind of ironic for me is that while we, we, we do a fairly decent job of, of, of uh, warning people of the dangers of what's out there, we don't often do a really good job, generally speaking, as a culture, or at all, really, uh, as a culture of, of teaching people about the dangers of what lies in here. I mean, everything that's messed up that we know, the dangers that exist here in this world, and John kind of alluded to it, all comes down to a danger that resides in our own human heart, and and that, in fact, the most dangerous thing, more than all of the things I just listed combined, is the evil that resides in the heart of man and the potential unspeakable evils that can come out of what's right here. But we don't often prepare people or warn children or kids or teenagers that there is something that is intensely dangerous right inside of your heart. Even if you're a believer. And that's one of the things that, that comes out in this, this dark chapter that we're going to look at this morning. And actually it's two chapters but really the one chapter, chapter 10, is just an, a backdrop to chapter 11 and 12 um, in which we find King David. And if You've been with us, we've, we've followed him up, up a, just a mountain of glory, um, man after God's own heart. Who else in the Bible is called that? Not very many people called a man after God's own heart. We've seen him um, display tremendous courage against the giant called Goliath. We've seen him display courage um, on the battlefield against the Philistines and Ammonites and the Moabites and And we've seen him, in faith, wait patiently for God to place a crown on his head, as he promised, without ever seizing control. We've seen David um, rule with justice and equity. In chapter 9, we saw him remember uh, to extend covenant love to his friend Jonathan by taking his son into his own home uh, and offering of steadfast love to the grandson of his enemy. I mean, everything that we've seen of this man just is, is that he is, a, he is truly a man after God's own heart. And if um, the Psalms that he's written display a man who has an affection, a passion, a communion, an intimacy with God that few ever experience... And yet, in this chapter, we find this man who is so godly and has been taken so far, we find him slide into this morass of, of immorality. The idea being, if, if, if David, a man after God's own heart, can have that kind of treachery in his heart and, and then unleash it in a way that, that damages not only himself and his family, but the nation itself, well then, how much more could it happen to us? wouldn't be surprised if a pagan did this. But this is King David, a man after God's own heart, who slides to the bottom and commits atrocities that in our day we would have him not only impeached but imprisoned. I mean, his, his actions make the actions of Watergate or the scandal with Monica Lewinsky look like kleptomania, you know. It just doesn't even compare to what he does in this chapter. And yet the vividness of the detail of what he does and how sin works itself out in his life is graphic enough to teach us how sin takes hold of a life and and for us, a warning to us as to how sin can lay hold of our lives as believers, as true believers. So I want to just look at this um, slide down um, with particular attention to the process of David's slide into sin in hopes and prayer that God will equip us to understand um, the dangers in the river of life, uh, and dangers in particular of this slide downward. Before I look at the story, let me just make one, we might call it, um, contextual observation. Um, David's great failure is set in the context of a great war. Chapter 10 opens up with a rebellion on the part of the Ammonites against David. It begins a war which many believe to be the biggest war that David will ever fight in his career. That war which begins in chapter 10, which sets the stage, kind of disappears to the background in chapter 11 and first part of 12, and then comes back to the forefront at the end of 12 where it is resolved. Um, it is resolved. So, with the Ammonites, so the war begins with the Ammonites and ends with the Ammonites, and wedged in between this war um, is David's failure. And that, to me, is a a rather vivid contrast. David's used to, or at least experienced in dealing with rebellion from the outside. But what he's not so adept at dealing with is the rebellion that he's going to face on the inside war out there, but there's going to be a rebellion in his own heart, and he's going to see just what his heart is capable of in in these chapters that that, uh, follow chapter 10, 11, and and 12, and even on after that. So um, let me start um, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, where we read, in the middle of the context of this war, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Rabbah is the, is the capital royal city of the Ammonites, in, the, in a fortified city, so they're laying siege to this, this city. Um, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, that he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw the... Saw From the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very, very beautiful. The the Bible never really um, wastes uh, descriptions of how people look. It doesn't happen a whole lot, which means she was darn hot, is what it basically means. Here you have David. Um, uh, Men are sent off to war, and and interestingly enough, he decides he's going to stay back, either because he's battle-weary or because perhaps... A sense of complacency is setting in. We don't know. The text doesn't actually answer that question, but he stays back and he gets up from an afternoon siesta off the couch, and he makes a fateful little walk out onto his roof, where he just happens to see, as I said, someone who's very, very attractive. In the Jewish day, in our lingo, she would be a ten, and uh, and she was. And uh, his eyes latch on, and something in his heart um, rises. And he's going to take action. Now, the question I, I just want to explore for a second is, is why. Because it seems like he goes from 0 to 60 in in seconds. Like, how can he go so high, show such restraint in personal vengeance and in patience and waiting for the Lord and all of a sudden just lose control in this moment? And here I, I believe to the careful reader of First and Second Samuel, the writer has given us hints along the way that David has a character flaw. You might call it a blind side or a blind spot in his life. Um, all the way back in First Samuel chapter 27 and actually I need to back up further than that because I want you to see how sin works. Centuries before David ever existed, the law of Moses was given. And one of the things that, 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 that God spoke through Moses to the people of the future, like David, was specific instructions on what the kings were not to do who would rule over the people of Israel. And they were not to do at least three things. Not gather lots of chariots and horses, which is putting confidence in military power. And not to amass for this, themselves lots of silver and gold because they trust in, in wealth. And the other thing was not to take many wives to themselves, lest they be led astray of the heart. Well, David is a man who meditates upon the law of the Lord, we're told in his psalms, so he would have understood the words of the Lord, the instructions for his own protection and for the protection of the people of Israel, that he was not to take many wives. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 27, um, earlier in his life, he has one wife named Ahinoam, and to her he adds another one by the name of Abigail, the wife of Nabal. So he's got two. Now that's not many. That's a couple, but it is an addition. By the time we proceed historically to 2 Samuel chapter 3, we find that he adds five more, a good baker's half dozen. By the time we get to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, when his palace is in Jerusalem, it makes the comment that he took many concubines and wives in Jerusalem. I don't know how many. It doesn't number them at that point. But at this point, I think it's pretty clear that it's many. A subtle compromise, we might say, on the specific instructions of the Lord for the king, for the protection of his own life, for the protection of the kingdom. And here David is showing a a, a rather callous disregard for the word of the Lord over time. In other words, this is something that has been building for some time, a a, a set or series of subtle compromises. It suggests to us, the writers, it's almost like one of those eerie... uh, Dissonant chords that enter into the otherwise happy music of early in David's life. But you hear the chord and you're just kind of thinking, that doesn't quite seem right. Well, that's kind of how you're supposed to feel because it's an omen of things to come. Is to say that David has a particular weakness and his particular weakness is sensual. It's the desire for women. So by the time that he gets to this place in his life, it's not as if this was a one-time failure. The context was right. He was alone on the top of his roof and the long series of subtle compromises and maybe a hardness of heart to the particular instructions of the Lord back in Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen. all of a sudden provided an avenue for what was already there to just take over. He had already established the habit of fulfilling his desire. He saw a woman who was available, and he would take her. That was his way or pattern of life up to this point. Which teaches us, I think, with that kind of backstory coming into this, that, that, that this was simply the unleashing of something that was already there, something that had already grown. And it shows us something about how sin works normally in the Christian life. And many of you know this, but need to be reminded of this as do I, that sin lays hold of the heart through subtle compromise to God's instruction. I can hear David compromise. I can hear him meditating on, 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 uh, on Deuteronomy 17, 17, where the Lord says, do not take many wives, and he'd be thinking, well, how many is a many? Is two many, or is three too many? And slowly, just kind of justifying the fact that pretty soon he has many. He's justified his action and slowly hardened his heart to the command of the Lord. And by the time you get to this point, it simply unleashes what's already there. And that's part of the danger of nursing or creating a, a room or tolerance in your life for a habitual sin that you think is minor. Minor recognize, brothers and sisters, Parkway Church, individual, all of us here, that sin by very nature is expansive, and hardness of heart is expansive. If you're willing to kind of harden your heart to an instruction which God gave us for our good and for the protection of those around us, well, then we have to be very careful and guarded about creating a habit of life in which we violate however minor we may think it is the instructions that the lord has given to us it suggests an increasing hardness of heart toward a particular command and it will allow room for sin that's a that's a pretty um potent word for a time in which in a lot of the christian conversations i have with people there's a there's a laxness a moral laxness about about god's moral commands um we're really not looked at as that big of a deal. It's like, yeah, we're not going to do the big sins, but the little ones, oh, no big deal. Well, if, if, uh, if where David's sin starts is any um, warning to us, then it would mean take notice of those little areas of your life where habits are forming, like David formed a habit of taking what he wanted, which unleashed in the end this uh, sin. That's one of the things we learn about, about how sin works. Well David makes an inquiry about this really hot 10 Jewish woman who he sees bathing naked on the roof or not on the roof but maybe in a courtyard. He was looking down at her and finds out that she's off limits. She has a ring on her finger. She's actually the wife of Uriah the Hittite who's listed in let's see it's 1 Samuel 2339 as one of David's top mighty men. That is this man was a loyal warrior compatriot to David and also a servant to the people of Israel and to Yahweh himself. He has a, a name which has the name Yah in it, Uriah, um, though he's not even a Jewish person. And here this, this loyal patriot to the, to the Yahweh and to the people of Israel and to King, he's off fighting battles. Meanwhile, his wife's left at home and David sees her, finds out she's off limits. And what he then does, because he's already been captured by the desire that's been latent there the whole time, is he reaches across that threshold and grabs hold of the forbidden fruit. Grabs hold of the forbidden fruit. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had, she had uh, been purifying herself from her uncleanness, that is... Her time of the month was over, so clearly this would be when she says, I'm pregnant, it's David's kid. That's why that little detail's there. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she said, sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And here David is, he's grabbed hold of what is prohibited. God has not given him freedom to have this woman. She belongs to another person. Now he's, he's taking what is not his. There is no exchange of words recorded in this uh, little um, encounter Uh, There's no conversation, there's no candlelight, no romantic dinner, there's nothing, only action. He took her and he lay with her. The only words that Bathsheba says in this entire chapter are the three words that would change David's life forever. I am pregnant. I am pregnant. See, when we heard David back in, in 2 Samuel 7, he, he was overwhelmed by, by God's grace. He was the guy who saying, Who am I, O oh Lord, that you would make these astounding promises? He was so humbled by the amazing grace of God. And here we find David as the covetous David, who's thinking to himself, I am the man and taking what's not his. One of the things that this shows, and Nathan, the prophet, when he comes to him in chapter 12 will confirm this, is that David has lost sight of the enormous blessings of God's grace and God himself that he has lavished on him. He's reaching for the more. He has everything. He has power. He has position. He has a palace. He has a whole harem of, of wives, which, of course, wasn't as we... Learned wasn't a good decision on his part. He's received amazing covenantal blessings, eternal promises that someone in his his line would reign forever. He's he's experienced the heights of intimacy with God, and and here he's not taking account for the enormous grace already given in his life. And he, like Eve before him, reaches for something, believing that if you only have that one more thing, well, then you'll really live. Believing the same lie that Eve and Adam did before back in the garden. But I want you to notice something that it's, that David lacks his focus or a remembrance on the grace that God has. He stopped being overwhelmed. He stopped saying, who am I? And now he's looking and taking what's not his. And that Mm -hmm. teaches us something that I think is really important. The sin gives birth to action when we take God and his grace for granted. When God's grace isn't overwhelming any longer, and we no longer think about, um, wow, Lord, you have completely lavished on me. Not only have you separated my sin from me as far as the east is from the west. Not only have you offered me communion through your Holy Spirit. Not only have have you offered me the hope and the promises of life beyond death and and communion with eternal family, and and all that that that, that implies. When you lose sight of that, well, then you start feeding yourself upon other things and start taking things that aren't yours. Nathan comes to David and basically convicts him of this in the next chapter, which we'll look at next week. Nathan says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You can hear this. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you to the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, saying, I have heaped grace upon grace upon grace to you. And if that was too little, I would add to you as much more. You've lost sight of everything that I've given you. You've taken my grace for granted. And when, when, when people of Israel had done that historically, when they stopped remembering the grace that God showed in delivering them out of the grip of Egypt to make them a prized possession, well, then they inevitably turned to other gods. When the church ceases to be grateful and overwhelmed with the abundance of God's blessing poured out to us through the cross, we will inevitably Fill or feed our hunger on things that we should not be feeding ourselves on. That's just how, that's how it works. You're not going to find a person who's reaching beyond the threshold for something more who is truly satisfied with God. And satisfied with the enormous blessings that he has graciously provided us in Jesus Christ. Which is part of the reason why every Sunday we gather together and we try our best by the Holy Spirit to remember the cross. Remember the grace of God that has been given to us. To remember that Jesus has paid it all. To remember that he is the everlasting God. To remember that we are indeed sinners saved by grace alone. To remember that we were once blind but now we see. To remember that we were once dead but now been made alive. Because when our heart Is filled with praise and thanksgiving and gratitude toward God for all that he has done. We're not going to have a lot of room to say, yeah, but I really want something else. You see? Sin gives birth to action when we take God's grace for granted. That's how it worked in David's life. That's how it works in our life as well. Well, those three faithful words, only two words in Hebrew, I am pregnant changed the course of David's life. It sets in motion, um, you might call it a sequential plan to cover it all up. And that, of course, is something else that sin innately or intrinsically does, and that it tries to hide. You uh, see this in the Garden of Eden, and you see this true in David's life. It's interesting, you know, that the parallel between Genesis 3 and 2 Samuel 11... God has granted Adam and Eve absolutely everything. There's only one thing they can't have, but they reach beyond it. God has granted David absolutely everything, um, and yet reaches beyond it and unleashes an avalanche on his own people as Adam and Eve unleashed an avalanche on humanity ever since. The sin always tries to hide. For the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize. It's kind of a threefold plan. First one, easiest one, the cleanest answer is, you know, he sends for Uriah, brings him back, figuring he'll go in and have some quiet time with his wife. Well, Uriah is a better man than David is. Part of the custom of the day is to remain a uh, celibate while you were at battle or while your men were at battle, which is something, ironically, David does not do. But he keeps his, um, his chastity during this time of warfare, and he doesn't go in and, and sleep with his wife. It would have been a natural cover-up. The man would have thought it was his. So when that fails, we might call that cover-up plan number one. He turns to cover-up plan number two, which is, let's liquor him up. His inhibitions will dissolve, and he'll give in to his desire to be with his wife. And so that's what David does. He gets the man drunk, liquors him up, sends him home, but Uriah the Hittite does, does not go home. He doesn't sleep with his wife. So the cover-up plan number one, of, which is somewhat clean, um, doesn't work. Cover-up plan number two, manipulation, dirty pool, get the man drunk so he'll go do it, um, gives way to the criminal cover-up. And that is, and you know the story, or many of you do, um, he decides, you know what, the only way to get rid of this thing is to get rid of the man. And so he, he writes a message And it's a message to the commanding general of the armies of Israel, a man by the name of Joab. And he sends this message by the hand of Uriah the Hittite. What Uriah doesn't know is he makes his way from Jerusalem back to the battlefield as he's carrying in his hand his own death sentence, betrayed by his own king. He gets there and hands Joab the the message, and the message is essentially this. Send Uriah to the fiercest part of the fighting, and then in the middle of the fierceness of the battle, withdraw from him, leaving him exposed and alone so that he'll die. That's the plan. But apparently, Joab, the commanding general, thinks it's too obvious, so he embellishes or, or expands on the plan. Thinking perhaps, which is part of the reasoning why there's so much text given to these messages, messages back um, to David and so forth, is that to pull back and expose one man would be obvious. And so what Joab ends up doing is he exposes a number of men, a group of men of valor, to the fiercest part of fighting, and then withdraws from them. And a group of men, therefore, in turn, die. Word gets back to David with a little bit of a... a preparatory. If David gets mad, you tell him Uriah the Hittite's dead, because that's the main point. Teaches us something else about sin. This massive cover-up, which it, in the short term seems to work. Do you see what it's done? His s- subtle compromise in his life, combined with this lack of gratitude for the lavish grace that God has given To him in the right context, which gives birth to the sin of adultery, then is um, uh, compounded by a conspiracy to commit murder, not just of one, but ends up murdering a whole number of innocent men. And Joab becomes complicit in the plot. That is, David's own heart has now involved Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, his general Joab, and the men and their families who lost because of David's cover up and his sin. It shows us that sin is socially malignant. It's socially malignant. Now, we tend to think compartmentally in our culture where, hey, you know what? Um, what a man does in his own house, in his own privacy, sin or not sin, that just affects him. You follow? I, I hear that all the time. It's just like, well, no, private sin is private sin. Maybe it'll affect him, but it's not going to affect anybody else. That is junk. Sin is fundamentally Relational. It infects like cancer. It it, it it necessarily spills over in attitudes and perspectives and words. It is, it is, it is an absence of love, which is um, relational. In other words, it chews at the very fabrics of marriages and relationships between fathers and sons and mother, mothers and daughters and communities and churches. It's, it is relationally corrosive. It's malignant. It metastasizes. So don't for one second think... Well, if I, I insulate myself and I just go into my little closet, and I'm going to sin right here with a computer or with some kind of a gaming device. Don't think for one second that it's going to stay insulated in your little private life. It's not how it works. It, it, it's not how it worked in the Garden of Eden. It's not how it works in David's life. It's not how it works in our lives. It spills over. That's part of the danger of it. I know sometimes we like to think, well, you know what? I kind of have this under control. I, I, I have the willpower to, to not let it go any farther, whatever particular pattern of sin you might habitually struggle with. I, I, can, I can manage this. I'll tell you what. Our wills are far more frail and fractured than you know. And it is, it can t- in a moment... As in David's life, in a moment, your will can be hijacked by the sinful desire and you become a slave to act. That's scary. It's, it's scary. It's socially malignant. And then the, the last thing that I'm going to just draw out from there's people have picked apart this chapter for hundreds, thousands of years and found all kinds of things, um, but I don't have time for that. And I don't know it all, but the last thing is that sin brings the displeasure of God, uh, perhaps the worst of all. It seems that David in his sin and then his attempt to cover it up actually succeeded. The secret is safe, Uriah's dead, he takes the wife Bathsheba to be his own, they have the baby, and it seems like the pot pot, uh, lid is back on the kettle, so to speak. Nobody knows except Joab and Bathsheba and David. But the final word and the ominous word that closes this chapter is this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Displeasure. And that's that's God's response to human sin. Displeasure. And it explains, It expresses itself in one of two ways, depending upon whether a person is a believer or not a believer. God's displeasure expresses itself to an unbeliever in the form, ultimately, of wrath, of exile, final, complete separation, when all things are brought out on the table and a man is judged for his sin. To the one who is a believer, and David is a believer, he is a man who God loves despite the fact that he has done some astronomically wicked things that we haven't seen the end of. His displeasure will come in the form of correctional and painful discipline. Displeasure. You know, when you talk about the displeasure of the Lord, and by the way, this is not really a side note, but Oftentimes, it seems like we're so one-dimensional in our understanding of the doctrine of justification, which means God has finally and fully removed our sin from us, and he looks at us with the righteousness of Jesus. He's not condemning us anymore because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a truth that is absolutely 100% foundationally true. We sometimes think that because that is indeed true, that there is no place for God's pleasure or displeasure in the Christian life which I find in the scripture is, 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 um, is not true. It, 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 it is, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that, hey, I want you to figure out how to pre- please God. Well, the implication is then we can actually displease him too, not in a way in which we're ever under condemnation again, but there can be displeasure of God in your life if you're living a life um, that is um, out of line with his good revealed instructions for our lives. And that displeasure oftentimes takes the... the um, the form of a, of a, of a of a dried out withdrawing of the intimacy of communion and fellowship with him. I mean, one of the things that I think David lamented the most, if you read Psalm fifty one in his lament, is he lamented more than anything, not just the repercussions and the and the con, uh, the consequences, but the very fact that he had experienced the loss of fellowship for the one he treasured the most. I mean, he, he knew. I mean, we, just to... The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, Psalm 16. Or, in your presence there is fullness of joy, that's David. Or, your love is better than life. Like, he knew the sweet fellowship of communion with the Lord that's better than anything on this world. He knew that. And yet, in a state of willful, unrepentant sinfulness, that sweetness, the wonder, the, the romance of one's relationship with God dries up. Which is why he says this in in Psalm 32. Another psalm of confession when he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away within me through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried out as by the heat of summer. It's like there's nothing left in here anymore. Because the treasure... What he treasures so much, and that is personal, intimate communion with with Yahweh, was was now languid, and it wasn't there anymore, which is why he says, Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Sometimes Christians walk the Christian life in having tasted once the greatness of fellowship with him. They walk in the absence of that because... They continue to live their life on their own terms. And um, they're experiencing the absence of fellowship because of the displeasure of the Lord. So, this brings up the personal question and the, the big so what. How are you doing? It's God's people. This chapter is a huge danger sign. A man of God, little compromises, takes grace for granted, and tries to cover it up. Sin grows and affects others, and then ending with the the displeasure of the Lord. How about you? How about me? Maybe you're in the first category. Maybe you're trying to confine a pattern of sin in your life and and you think it's small, but it's continued, then maybe the point of this message is, you know what? Repent. Turn. Maybe you're a person who has stopped being overwhelmed by the immeasurable grace of God and Christ in your life, which is setting you up to grab for something else, in which case you need to repent. Sorry, Lord, that I have become complacent about something so big and so lofty and so wonderful so overwhelming or maybe you're coming here and there's a big secret in your life and you've tried everything you can to cover it up sometimes people come to church to cover up make themselves feel better about a huge catastrophe that they're keeping hidden and your point of this message perhaps to you is that you know what as we'll find next week there is no healing when it's kept in the dark. It has to be brought into the light. Not only between you and the Lord, but perhaps you need to involve another trusted brother or sister to say, this is the reality of my life and get yourself out of a dangerous situation. Or maybe the sweetness of fellowship that I, I believe the Bible offers and I know I've experienced sometimes more than others Maybe it's gone languid in your life and and maybe you can point to compromise and say, "Ah, that's probably it. Well, heavens, for the sake of a return of the passionate communion with your heavenly Father through Jesus, repent. That's really all you can do. You can't offer him anything in return. You can't pay him back. You can't wash yourself. You can't. That's something only the Lord can do by the blood of Jesus and and so I, I'm just simply asking this morning, what is, what is your response to this and where are you? And if, if you're in a nice place where, hey, everything is good and I'm not living in sin, then praise the Lord. And if you're not in that place, then, then I hope that you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to you. David had to learn firsthand how devastating it was. He had to learn more than anything. I think this is the greatest test of his life. He needed to learn that he needed to be saved, not just from the Philistines. He needed to be saved from himself. As you and I need to be saved from ourselves. And he would face the deep question, how far will grace go? Will it reach far enough down to recapture and reclaim someone who's committed so many horrendous things? shows us the treachery of sin and the depth of grace, as we'll see next week. It also shows us that more than anything, we need a king who's not just a man after God's own heart, but we need a king, a ruler, a savior, who is perfect, which David never was. So will you respond uh, this morning however you need to? Again, this is the time. I, I'm fearful that you'll, if, if, if the Lord is speaking to you, you'll leave here without really dealing with it. Now's the time to deal with it because the Lord's speaking now, but when you leave here, that voice may be gone. So respond today, now. Just take a moment and I'll pray for us.